This morning as we come to James, we want to deal with maybe a little weightier subject. A subject that is challenging to deal with at times, especially when we hear some of the objections that our non-believing friends and family have of who God is and what He does. And and we just look at the news and and we, we have to ask some questions. Two weeks ago, 207 Christians were killed in Sri Lanka as they worshipped our Lord and Savior from bombings. How do we make sense of that? What kind of world do we live in where that kinds of things happened? Just a couple years ago, a family with three kids on their way to missionary training in Nebraska were rear-ended by a semi, and the entire family was killed. And these are challenging things. Susie and I have sat with some of you that have lost pregnancies and we've cried with you and ached with you and mourned with you. Some of you have had to deal with cancer or other chronic illness and our hearts have broken with you and we've prayed diligently for you to see how God is going to work through that. But these are the realities of the fallen world we live in, right? These are the challenges we have to face And as we face these things, there's really two conclusions that people come to. Number one, it is so easy to blame God. And it is so easy to turn on God and say, why God? Why are you allowing this to happen? Some people would say, God, why are you causing this to happen? Or we can take James' advice that we saw at the beginning of chapter 1 and count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds. But that is easy to say and really difficult to do. And so James in this middle section of James chapter 1 is going to get very theological with us and help us answer this question. Help us not become angry at God. Help us not doubt God and not doubt His goodness as we explore the role of trials in our lives. The question he's going to answer today is how do we persevere? How do we keep from becoming bitter as we face these things, because it is so, so easy to let them control us and overtake us and let bitterness set in. As you know, in the background of James chapter 1, we started by talking about trials, and he dove right in and shocked us by saying, count it or choose joy in the middle of the most difficult circumstances, because God is using those to grow you, to strengthen you. And then he said, Ask God for wisdom of how to get through that. And then he gave examples of even when you're rich or you're poor, you have to deal with different things and you have to deal with trials. And we come back to God. And so now we get to verse 13 in James chapter 1. If you turn there with me, James chapter 1, 13, it'll be vital that you're reading the Word this morning and following along as we go verse by verse. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover one under a seat right around you. Pull that out. Follow along. James chapter 1. If you don't have one at home, please take that home with you as our gift to you. But we come this morning to the text and we ask, how can we resist the temptation to turn on God and to not persevere through trials? How do we resist that temptation? And James is going to take even a broader view and say, how do we resist temptation in general? How do we view temptation in general? Is it something God causes? Is it something that he's part of? How do we reconcile this with the sovereignty of God? And these are hard issues. And I've just got to say up front, this morning we're just going to take a little bite of the apple. This is a huge topic, a huge subject that books are written on. 
How do we deal with the problem of evil in this world? How do we deal with God's sovereignty? And so we're going to look at what James has to say. We're going to stay really tethered to the text and look at the, the arguments James is going to give us, knowing that it's just a small piece, just a bite of the apple as we deal with this. So James chapter 1, we'll start by looking at 13 through 15 with how can we resist temptation to turn on God? How can we resist temptation in general? And James writes this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so James, again, dives right in, and his style just gets right to the point, and he's quick and and, and brief on it, but he gets to the point. And the first thing he wants us to understand is the source of our temptation. And really, what is God's role in our temptation and in our trials and the things that we experience? What is God's role in all that? And he starts in verse 13 by saying, God is not the source of temptations and evil you experience. God is not the source of the temptations and evil you experience, so don't blame him. And he starts with, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And the temptation is to attribute all of the evil and everything we experience to God and say, well, if it's from God, then there's nothing I can do about it. I might as well give in. It's God's fault. He he allowed that trial. He put me in that situation, so I don't even have to respond properly. I just have to endure it, get through it. And James here is giving us a, a lesson in theology and saying, let's talk about who God is. Let's talk about what He does. He does not tempt. So we can't say, I am tempted by God. Now, we love to blame others, don't we? It's part of who we are. If you have kids, you've seen this firsthand. Right? I didn't do it. Must have been... I almost used one of my kids' names. But no, you you, you fill in the name. Must have been Mark. Must have been Jeffrey. Must have been Alicia. And then Susie and I may come and say, well, actually, we know you did it. Well, he made me. He really convinced me, and it was really his fault still. I, I, my favorite one is still, he hit me back first. <laughs> Let's talk about that. But this isn't new to my kids. It's not new to your kids. In fact, from the beginning of time, we've been passing the buck and, and hesitant to take blame. Fair enough? Genesis chapter 3. Let's think Adam and Eve. Let's go to the first human beings on the planet. And they've just sinned and they've just eaten of the fruit. And God comes and he seeks them out and he says, Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, It was her. Okay, I, I, I interpreted it a little bit. The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And he's pointing the finger. So then God goes to Eve. Because maybe she'll take responsibility for what she's done. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is it that you've done? The woman said, the serpent, he deceived me and I ate. And so from the beginning of time, we are really good at passing the blame because we don't want to take responsibility for the crud in our own lives, right? If we think about it, we don't want to take responsibility for the sin in our lives. If I can pass that off to someone else, I don't have to take it as seriously. 
And I don't have to look in the mirror and face that I am a fallen man and an evil person sometimes. Now, if you came this morning and you're like, I'm going to get a good message, an encouraging message this morning, we're evil. We're fallen. And we need to own that. We need to understand that. And here, James start by, by saying, when you're tempted, don't be saying, I'm tempted by God. Now, you might be saying, okay, we're talking about temptation here. What does that have to do with trials? And, and we have to get a little technical here and understand the connection between trials and temptation because James isn't changing subjects here. He's still talking about the same subject. And to understand that, you need a little bit of, of Greek understanding of some of these words. And we don't do this often. But the Greek word for temptation and the Greek word for trials is the exact same word. And we, in our minds, we separate these into two very, very different things. But in the Greek, in the original language, they are the same word. And in the Hebrew mind, there is a whole lot of intertwining between those subjects that we don't always get. We think of temptation as something internal, right? As something that comes inside, a desire to sin, being enticed to sin... And we think of trials as something neutral or something bad that happens that external to us. And, and those are both true. And those are part of the nuances. And in English, we define that out um, a, a little better. But in, in Hebrew, they intertwine those because they would say that every trial is a temptation. Every trial contains in it a temptation to doubt God to question God, to respond with bitterness, to respond with anger, to shut down. And so every trial is a temptation. And they would say every temptation is a trial. And so there's this intertwining. The the word actually has several different nuances. The first is more what we would consider testing, to discover the nature of something, to test or to prove. The second is more what we consider temptation, to entice someone to evil. To entice someone to do evil. And the third is more what we would consider trials, to entrap for harm. And these are all part of this word, but, but they're, they're much more similar than they are different, even though they have nuances and ways they overlap and ways that they try to explain this. And so when, when, when we're tempted to doubt God, when we're tempted to get angry at God, when we're tempted to fail to trust his goodness, that's tied up in the circumstances as well. And, and so all of that becomes a test. And so we, we have to think of them together. God uses circumstances to test us. But those circumstances may be from evil or caused by evil. And then Satan may use those as a temptation to respond poorly. Let me give some examples to help us understand, because I know that's a little bit more nuanced. Financial difficulties. You, you're, there's no money in the bank. You've lost your job. You don't know how to, to pay your bills. That is a trial. That is not a good thing that has happened to you. But it includes a temptation then to not trust God or to resort to, to sinful methods or to losing our integrity to gain money, to steal or to, to borrow and never repay, however you want to word that, however we want to justify that. And so those financial difficulties, the circumstances carry with it an inherent temptation to not trust God. You know, an accident or death of a loved one can make us question God's love. So we have a circumstance and a temptation. Medical issues, a terminal illness or a chronic illness can make us question God's care and can, can make us question our hope in the Lord. 
And that's the temptation of how we respond to that situation. And these are all tied together. One of the the authors that I really like and respect on James is Douglas Moo. And he points out that we, we have to be careful not to separate too sharply trials and temptation because temptation, while distinct from trials, they often occur in relationship with our trials. And he's saying there's much more overlap in these concepts than there is differences. And so all that to say, and the reason I bring that up in verse 13, we could just as easily, that could just as easily be translated, let no one say when he experiences trials, these trials are caused by God. That would be a a valid translation of, of that verse. Just like let no one say when he is tempted, these temptations, or God is tempting me, these temptations are from God. And so how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the sovereignty of God And does He cause sin? Does He cause temptation? Does He cause the trials in our lives? These are real questions that maybe you're not asking, but people are asking. But I would bet there are times in your life you've asked them. And so let me just give us a basis of three questions of where I believe this text is going. And you can you can argue with me later. In fact, don't pull out your phone now and start writing nasty emails. Um, Save them for later. First question that I think we'd all agree. Does God tempt us? No, never, it's impossible. Does God tempt us to sin? No, never, it's impossible. And that's, that's a foundational point James is making that directly confronts our, our abuse of the character of God sometimes. And so our sovereign God will always act within His character. And you're going to hear me say that a number of times this morning. He will never tempt you to evil. And we'll go on at the verse in a minute as James explains why. Second question, does God cause the trials in our lives? And I'm going to assert today, no. But with some explanation, understanding the trials, I'm speaking of the trials that come from evil and sin in this world. There are trials we face that are a result of the fallen world we live in because God in His righteousness and holiness has ordained that sin has consequences. And that's part of His character. And and we experience the consequences of this fallen world when there's natural disasters, when there's there's sickness, when there's illness, when there's death. Those are all the consequences of this fallen world. And so it's very important that we understand God is not the cause of those things, the originator of those things. That is caused by the sin and the consequences of sin. Now when we get to the third question, you're going to see that God may allow those and He does use those in His sovereignty. But it's so vital to not attribute the cause to Him. And and I'll explain why in a minute. This doesn't mean that God is out of control and sin is reigning. No, He is in control. He's the one that ordains that there are consequences to sin. And He allows some of those things in our lives for our growth and for our benefit. And He will turn them for good. But He is not the one that caused the cancer in your life. He is not the one that caused the car accident. Those are a result of sin and evil in this world. But He will allow them for your good and use them for His plan and purposes. That makes sense? And again, hold off on the emails till we get through the, um, the text. Because I know that this is, this is a debatable issue. A couple of exceptions. And we have to understand that 
I, I'm, I'm taking a little tiny bite of the apple, like I said, and there's all kinds of discussion we can have around this. Exception number one, there are things we call trials that God doesn't. Okay? There are, it makes sense. There are things we call trials that God doesn't that aren't the result of evil, sometimes that are a result of God's good work in our lives, and we resist it and we call them trials. For instance, just a, a couple of, of, uh, of examples. So you go in this week, and someone else, a coworker at work, gets a promotion that you wanted. Nothing, nothing shady's happened, no money under the table or anything. They just got a promotion that you wanted. You come to, to Bible study and you say, I have this trial in my life. Someone got a promotion that I wanted. That's not, to, to us it's a trial, to us it's a difficulty that we have to give to God, but it's not a result of the evil in this world. And so we are calling something a trial that God doesn't. Maybe God wanted to bless that person. Maybe God in his sovereignty knows that that person is there for a reason we don't understand. You know, sometimes, so, some of you even, you've ended up pregnant later in life. And your family's done, you think we're done, and all of a sudden another kid comes along. And, and it is so easy to come and say, this, is, this child is such a trial. No, no, that's a blessing from God. That's a good thing. Yes, it interrupts our lives. Yes, to us it's a difficulty and it's a trial. But those kinds of things very well might be caused by God. That's not from evil. We know how children are made. And that's how He made the world. And so let's be careful not to call trials things that God has ordained and God has welcomed into our lives. Exception number two to this, we know from Scripture God disciplines those He loves. And God disciplines sin. This is part of the consequence of sin. And so things that are trials in our lives may very well sometimes be God's discipline on us. And so like I said, there, there are nuances around this that we have to understand. But in general, does God cause trials in our lives? No. Those are caused... And the causative agent is the evil and fallenness of this world. And we'll get to why I believe that's what James is saying in the text. This is just sort of the groundwork. Number three, question number three. And, and these are all, incidentally, these are part of the definition of trials and temptations that, that James is using here. Third, does God test us for our growth, strengthening, and good? Yes. Yes. He allows trials and He gives us situations that leads to our growth and maturing if we respond rightly. And so He will allow things in our lives that He knows are for our good, that He knows will refine parts of our, our character and will chip off areas of sin that we are holding on to and areas of rebellion we are holding on to. We know from Scripture, and each of these I can give examples in Scripture, but we know from Scripture that God says He tests His people. With Abraham, as, as, as he told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and that's a whole other story we could talk about, but he specifically says, I am testing Abraham. And so we can't get around the fact that God tests us, but that does not mean he's the causative agent of evil in our lives. Do you see the difference I'm making? It's a distinction, I know. But it's vital in who God is and what, who, what our approach to God is. Let me give you an example. If I have a child, and this hasn't happened recently, but so, so no, don't try to pick which of my children or anything. But if I have a child 
that just aches to touch the hot stove. I will tell him, don't touch the hot stove. Right? It's hot. You will burn yourself. It will hurt. Every day we might say that. Don't touch the hot stove. And they keep almost. We grab the hand and, you know, whatever it is. And at some point, I as a loving father may say, may, may stand back and let them touch that stove. And some of you may already be saying, that's not loving. No, no. If, if that is how I know they will learn that lesson, and that is the choice they are making, I may let them do that knowing that 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 will give a lifelong lesson and it will end this whole situation. That is very different. So I've allowed them to do something. That is very different if I grab their hand and place it on the hot stove so they learn their lesson. That is directly causing evil on my child. Do you see the difference? And, and this is a vital difference in in defending the character of God through trials and through difficulties, through the junk in this Genesis 3 world. If I do that, well, you'll call CPS on me and all kinds of... That's monster behavior. But the other is loving father behavior to teach and to instruct. And so all of that, I think, gives us a backdrop to what James is saying here. And, And I know this is still the first verse. But what James is saying here, when he's trying to explain God's role in temptation, God's role in trials. So we come back to what is the source of temptation and evil. And again, in verse 13, he goes on, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And then he makes two assertions. The first is, God cannot be tempted by evil. Right? In verse 13, For God cannot be tempted with evil. And, and the wording here, again, it's, it's, it's very direct. The wording here is God will have nothing to do with evil. He cannot be tempted or he can't even be touched by evil. God will have no part. He can have no part as a righteous, holy God with any evil that is happening. He can't be tempted by it. He can't do evil. He can't even have an inkling of it. And so James's point here, and, and God's point, the Holy Spirit's point through James, is God has nothing to do with evil, so He will never be the cause of evil. He will never tempt you to do evil. He will never hope for you to do evil. He will never be the cause of evil in your life. And yes, I've already said in His sovereignty, He may allow it because of His righteousness and holiness and the consequences for sin. And this is hard to get our heads around. But it's important to to take the Bible at its word that He will never tempt us. He will never cause us to sin. He will never be the originator of sin. And He will never be the agent of evil in our lives. Amen? That's the God we serve. We are not to doubt it. And trials make us tempted to doubt that. And the second phrase that he uses there, and he himself tempts no one. God tempts no one ever. And and he's just expanding of, he can't be touched by evil, so he won't ever be the causative agent of evil. By definition, in fact, since since sin is missing the mark of God's character, it's disobedience to God. If If God asks us to do it, then it can't be sin by definition. Because now we're just obeying God. 
But God will never ask us to do something contrary to his character. Never. He is sovereign, but he has chosen to always work within his character. And we can take that as a promise and we can take that to the bank because that will never change. No matter what you and I are experiencing, God is still righteous, holy, and good. And he is still loving. And that will never change. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 reaffirms this, that sin and temptation and evil is not from God. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And he makes a statement of fact there that those things are not from God. They never have been. They never will be. And so no excuses for sin. James is talking about the source of temptation. And he says, it's not God. And in the next verse, he's going to say, actually, it's you. It's you. It's what's inside you. And he's trying to get us to understand this. One pastor, Kent Hughes, was writing that the commonest delusion is that God has given me passions and appetites so strong I can do nothing but yield to them. And he quotes Scottish poet Robert Burns that says, Thou knowest that thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. What is he doing? Blaming God. You made me like this. You made these desires. And and this, can, can you hear the argument of the day in culture? The argument of the day is we have this desire, we have this propensity toward this lifestyle. We have these interests. You know, we, we have a propensity to drugs and alcohol or, or, uh, or, or homosexuality or whatever it is. And in our culture today, we say if we have those ideas, if we have those desires, they must be from God and they must be okay. No. No, those are coming from our sin nature. Those are coming from the corruption of a fallen world that is inside of every one of us. Those are never from God. And God never made those into us. That's the argument here. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. No. God's never been touched by sin and he will never cause sin or evil. So then we get to verses 14 and 15. And we'll move a little faster now that we've set our foundation. Part of of not falling into the temptation of doubting God and and, in trials and and falling into temptation in general is to admit the steps of temptation and sin. And so point number two, you yourself are the source for your temptation and sin. You yourself are the source for your temptation and sin. This is part of repentance, right? Right? If, if, my, if my child is saying he did it or she did it or they made me do it, I know they haven't owned it and they're not repentant yet. I know they're still fighting and trying to justify sin, which we are all so good at. But James says, no, this is you. Own it. Accept it. Take responsibility. And then let God deal with it. So verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And James is saying, not only don't blame God, the source is you. 
And he would say, not even Satan. Satan may present an opportunity, but temptation is something that we, in our desires, it, it grows and we give into. And so the steps that are mentioned here, ju- just read through this. We're tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desire. And that's where it starts. We have desires, we have wants, we have things we like. This, this word for desire is often used of negative things, but it can be used of any desire. And we desire to please self. We're, we're born with this sinful nature. And so he says, this is where sin starts. We're lured and enticed. We give in to desire. And, and the wording for lured and enticed is great. It, it, he's using a fishing metaphor. I love to fish. In fact, for those of, of my Sierra buddies here, fishing season started last weekend. So um, praise God I'm still here, I guess. But the, the wording here is, is wording directly from fishing. And the, the word for lured there is to be dragged away. It's like when the hook is set and you're being dragged in by the line. The, the word for enticed there is that that's used of bait in the attraction of bait. And so what James is saying, you want to know how sin actually works? Don't blame God for the evil in this world. Don't blame God for the evil in your heart. Sin works because you give in to your desires and that the bait of those, sin always looks good. It wouldn't be tempting if it didn't look good. And and so the bait looks good. It covers the hook. We take the bait, we give into it, and then the hook is set and it drags us away and takes hold in our lives and enslaves us. And that's the individual responsibility we have to take. Not he made me or she made me or circumstances caused this. No, we have to admit our own desires we gave into. And so that's the first step is those desires that then set the hook. And then James goes on and he says, not only are we enticed by our own desires, but then, and he's giving a sequence here, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And he's using a metaphor of of birth and conception. He says the desire is the conception. And then that time before birth, that's when we are dwelling on it, thinking about it. We haven't put the thought out of our minds. Maybe someone looks attractive at work and instead of ending that relationship or putting appropriate boundaries, we just let it go. And, you know, we get closer and and, because we enjoy the time together. Whatever it is, with sin, we start to think about it. We start leaving the door open instead of slamming the door shut on these desires and the sin. And that's the next step in the process. The desire is there. And then we start to mull it over and think about it and let it take hold. And that's like the pregnancy. And then James says, then it gives birth to sin where we act on that desire. Because we've been dwelling on it for nine months or however long we have. And the longer we leave the door open, the more rational it seems to walk away from God and to sin in that way. And so James says, it conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And he's speaking of spiritual death there, but sin, when, when, when we let sin happen, then it, it attaches to our lives and enslaves us, and then more sin comes along. And if we don't confess that, if we don't take ownership of that, then that controls us and leads us to death, eternity apart from God. And so the, the, there's these steps. We're lured and enticed by our own desire then we let that enticement grow, 
holding on to it, thinking about it, not stamping out the opportunity until it is birthed as sin. And then sin grows and enslaves throughout life until it brings death. Let's not fool ourselves. The goal of sin is always death. The goal of these things that look so appealing is always our destruction. Satan wants to destroy us because we are made in the image of God. And so he's using actually similar wording to what he used about trials, where trials can lead to perseverance, and perseverance, when it comes to completion, brings maturity. Here he says the opposite approach. We can, we can blame God. We can give in to temptation and those desires, and then those are birthed, and then we let sin build up, and it leads to death, something completely different. Village? If we're to defeat temptation, if we're to see victory, we have to start dealing with sin seriously. And not only taking sin seriously, we need to take temptation seriously. We need to stop this when it's still in in the, the pregnancy stage, so to speak. When it's just a thought, when it's just a desire, that's where we shut the door. That's where we take different routes. That's where we make sure it's not even a a temptation. Don't wait till it has been given birth to sin. But do we take sin and temptation seriously? What thoughts are we desiring? What thoughts are we fostering? What thoughts are growing in us? And maybe it's directly about sin. Maybe it's bitterness about somebody. And we let that seed grow and finally it, it blossoms and is birthed to hate. Maybe we, we let an attitude of not trusting God grow and, and we don't give ourselves to God and we're just playing Christian on Sunday and we haven't given ourselves wholly to Him and that kind of double-mindedness will grow and destroy us. See, becoming mature and complete through trials requires us to begin by recognizing and owning the temptation to not trust God and to fight Him in the difficulties. We've got to say, yeah, that's in me. That's easy to fall into. And then finally we get to the last section, 16 through 18, the answer to temptations and trials. We're to absolutely trust in the character of our good God. We're to absolutely trust in the character of our good God. And James is coming back to to God can't be touched by evil. He's not the author of evil in your life. And, And in fact... His character is just the opposite. And that's why he goes there in these verses. 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And and he's getting passionate about this. He goes, I care about you. You're my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived about the character of God. Don't question his goodness as you are persecuted. Don't blame God for these things. See him as someone coming alongside and using them for good in your life. So he says, don't be deceived. In verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. He says, no, you you want to know what God originates? What He's the author of? He's the author of every good and perfect gift in your life. What a beautiful promise. God wants good for His children. And He is the author of these good gifts. In fact, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, 
That word for coming is a present, uh, present participle, which means it's ongoing. And the idea that James is saying is, no, the character of God, He just wants to keep dumping good gifts on you. That's who God is. And as parents, can't we understand that? We can relate to this. Do we want to cause evil in our kids' lives? Or do we just want to dump goodness on them and see them respond well to that? That's our God. That's the God we serve. He is a good God. He is always good. There is never a time that He is not good. And He goes on to say He's coming down from the Father of lights. And and the Father of lights actually has a couple of ideas one is that he's our father and he's a good, that light's being good and right. But also, father of lights referred to he created a good creation. Lights referred to the sun and the moon and the stars. And, and he says, no, no, he created all things. He created it good. Us, we're the ones that messed it up. God's creation was good and perfect. But the sin that we've given into is where the problem is. Then he says, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And we, we sang about that this morning. And this is, I, I brought a basketball and a light. This is, you know, it's science project time we're doing with our kids. This is something you do in science. But this is what James is saying. And I, I never got it until I was studying this. The shadow and variation that he's talking about is due to those lights that he created moving. And so, so let me explain. The earth and the sun, right? So as the sun moves around the earth, what happens to the light on the earth? I'm sorry, the earth moves around the sun. <laughs> so we get an F on science projects. <laughs> As the, the earth moves around the sun, but I've got to move it just because it's, it's a flashlight. Um, the light is on different parts of the earth, right? And there are times where it's sunny and bright, and that might be associated with goodness. God is good. Oh no, God is only partially good. Oh no, I don't see the light at all. Is God good? And, and James is saying, no, that's not good. That's changing. That's varying shadows depending on where the light is. But God is constant. And He is always good. His gifts are always good. He is consistent. Now, we aren't. You know, one year you might get your wife Hobby Lobby for, for Christmas, a gift card. And it's like, oh, you're the best. And, and, and then the next year you get her a lawnmower you've been looking for. And perhaps the response won't be as, as pleasant. We stru- but James is saying, no, no, God is constant. He is constant in His goodness. There is never a time that God is not acting in a good way to you, in a loving way. Even in the middle of the darkest trials, village. Even in the middle of the darkest trials, that originate from the sin and evil in this world, but God in His sovereignty has allowed them and is using them for your growth and your good and your completion and your maturity. And God is even good in that because He is walking with you through the darkest of times. Never question the goodness of God. Never doubt the goodness of God. And in the last verse of our text, 18, he says the ultimate proof of that goodness, the ultimate aspect is of his own will, by his choice, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his, crea- of his creatures. And he again there is using this idea of giving birth. And he's like, no, desires give birth to sin, but here's what a good God does. 
of His own will, He has drawn us to Himself. And He has brought us forth, which is the same word, it's that of of giving birth. He has reborn us into the kingdom and adopted us as sons and daughters. If you want proof that God is good, the very fact that any of us are saved is all the proof we need that God is good and loving beyond our, our comprehension. And that's what what James is saying here. Of his own will, he brought us forth. He drew us because we don't seek God on our own. And he drew us. And from the word of truth, from the gospel, from his word, he saved us. And we just celebrated Easter. And we just celebrated the work on the cross, which is how he saved us, which is how he paid for the sin and evil in this world. And he took that on himself. So we would be a kind of first fruits or his, his own children. This is the proof of God's goodness. The fact that none of us deserve to be saved, that he has chosen to save us. God is good all the time. No matter what circumstances you're in, don't fall into the trap of blaming him for the evil in this world. See how He's using it. See how He's working through it. He is sovereign, but He will always work within His character. And He is righteous, He is holy, and He is loving, and He is good all the time. Lord God, our Father, we praise You as a a good God who is always good, who is always walking with us, who is always turning things and using things for our good for your glory. Lord, help us to never doubt that. Help us never to attack your character by doubting that. But to rest in that as our refuge and strength, as our anchor, as an anchor that gets us through the most difficult times, knowing that our good God is walking with us. Lord, keep us from temptation. Help us to fight that. Help us to slam the door on the desires that we have been letting fester. And let us seek you as a church, wholeheartedly and committed to You. Lord, we praise You for who You are and Your character and Your sovereignty. In Your name, Amen.